Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts, so you don't have to. This week we're asking, is ultra-processed food really killer cuisine? As... (laughs) (laughs) As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question for us about killer cuisine or a suggestion, tweet us at MedMinefield. Eve. I don't know what came over me there. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I mean, these were the headlines earlier this week. Killer cuisine. Silent killer warning is common mistake when buying lunch could have major consequences. There was a a heart conference last weekend and it was actually when I looked into it, it was a paper by a PhD student from the University of Sydney. But in classic tabloid style, this was reported as a landmark study shows pivotal research. And it showed this correlation between a high ultra processed food diet and cardiovascular disease. And the headlines went wild. But we know that already. Killer was there anything Was there anything new? That's what I couldn't get my head around. What was new? There seemed to be some suggestion that it wasn't just because of calories. It was also because of something that's in the ultra processed food that makes yes, you, so she, your head Yes, so she controlled, I believe, fast. for calories, salt, fat, uh-huh. sugar, etc., And even when you removed kind of the idea, because a lot of people have said that the processed food, ultra processed food, which we'll have to explain as a definition shortly, the reason it's so damaging is because it's, you know, fatty, sugary, salty, and we know these things are bad for you. But she said when when these things were controlled for, that you still saw this raised cardiovascular risk, Mm. raised blood pressure risk. So you could you could eat. I don't know, bowl of pasta with tuna or whatever it is that can have exactly the same amount of calories and fat and salt as something ultra processed, but the ultra processed food would still would be the still worst be... one for you. And and people were interpreting that as as because these foods contain ingredients that are never seen in a normal kitchen. A normal kitchen. You wouldn't Ooh. find them in your pantry. <laughs> have a look in your pantry. They're not there. Who has a pantry? Eve, do you have a pantry? No. no, I wanted to start this by saying, what did you have for dinner last night, Eve? Oh, God, this is going to paint me in Be a terrible honest. light. I had some leftover meatballs, mm-hmm. homemade, right. a mixture of pork and beef, mince, and a lovely tomato sauce. And I couldn't be bothered to make pasta because so, it was quite late. So I just had some like leftover Turkish bread from a local Turkish restaurant, which I love. And then I just dipped that in and loads of parmesan. Right. Okay. So the bread is the ultra processed bit of that meal, and then other yes. bits of it are processed because mince I also is had processed. Some, I had some hummus on the side. Is that ultra processed or is it processed? I think hummus is ultra processed. Well, last night I had a wrap from the local Turkish cafe, a falafel and halloumi wrap. Oh, delicious! Falafel, ultra processed. I, think I assume so. Processed. So mm. we should probably outline the official definition of okay. processed yeah, what is what is ultra processed food? So this comes from a set of studies in 2009 I believe by Brazilian researchers and they invented something called the Nova classification mm. which was a set of different categories of 
processed food. And the idea was that the amount of processing that goes into the food you eat can be used to tell how healthy or unhealthy something is for you. Mm-hmm. Nova one category, which is the least amount of processing, contains unprocessed or min- minimally processed foods, namely the edible parts of plants or animals that have been taken straight from nature or have been minimally modified or preserved. Okay, so when I look on the side of my pesto jar, I bought quite a posh one and it, it didn't seem to have anything different from what I would put in it if I made it myself. So I think that's probably in... Nova 2, oh. which is culinary ingredients. Well, so it contain the product contains culinary ingredients, so including salt, oil, sugar or starch. So uh, I'd imagine there'd be salt in pesto. Added salt, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And maybe oh, yeah, added definitely. oil. Mm, mm. So what about three? So Nova 3, and this is where we get into what's supposedly Killer bad cuisine. for us. Killer cuisine. <laughs> this is processed food. Right. So this we should be eating little of, but not completely ban. Okay. Such as freshly baked breads, canned vegetables or cured meats. When you say freshly baked, is that like I made it myself in my own oven? Yes, because they're made oh from... God, who has the time? Obtaining... <laughs> And combining Nova 1 and Nova 2 foods. Nova 4 is ultra processed. So this is what we should absolutely oh, be not consuming. Never, put it all in the bin. Never. Ready to eat industrially formulated products that are made mostly or entirely from substances derived from foods and additives with little, if any, intact group 1 food. So, okay, I'm again trying to draw an analogy from what I ate this week. Baked beans on toast... Which which category do they fall? I'd into? say that's probably processed because they derive from beans, which are. I'll on the admit ground. to you, this was not a freshly baked bread from my oven. It was white bread from the supermarket. I think that's ultra processed, then, my friend. <gasps> oh my god, am I going to die, doctor? It's Gila cuisine. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, how how much are we supposed to worry? I mean, I, I look at these headlines and at this point, I just I just feel like someone's fallen off the deep end, yeah. you know, saying that there are, you know, killers hidden in my in my um, supermarket lunch, in my in my tuna fish sandwich because it's got mass produced bread or, or whatever it is. It just doesn't feel re- grounded in any kind no. of reality. And what are Nova saying is killing us in, you know, I'm thinking again, as I've been on record saying I like, I love those uh, vegan meat burgers, the fake fake meat burgers and I had. Beyond meat. Beyond meat, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And I had those with American cheese, you know, those little squares. I mean, I presume that they're like literally death in a plastic wrapper. (laughs) Toxic. Uh, Toxic food. I made my own burgers. I made it in my own kitchen, but I made it with those ingredients. And you're here to tell the tale. <laughs> it's incredible, it's really. Miracle. Where there's life, there's a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you know what? What is it in these things that that people are saying are so harmful? Well, I think what's key to say is that all of these studies, so the Nova studies, which were were you know was a major major report, and uh, that's what kind of triggered off all of this guidance from official bodies to say that we should avoid ultra processed food. Mm. They're all based on association. So you have a big big group of people, and you track them over a long period of time. You look at the foods that they eat, and the people who eat a lot of ultra processed food are more likely than people who eat fewer um, mm, mm. ultra processed foods to develop 
heart disease, diabetes, become okay. obese, etc. And and that's what this new PhD research paper landmark study <laughs> discovered as well, isn't it? And and dissertation. But what is the mysterious thing about these foods? Because you know, I mean, you you won't remember this, but I am old enough to have grown up eating spam. Mm. Um, we had spam, which you could not get a more processed thing. Is it beef or pork? I think it's some kind of pork product. Oh. I mean, it's like no meat you've ever seen for the younger <laughs> listeners. But it's coming back into fashion. I've oh, seen all the it? TikTokers do do like oh, they spam? Fried, spam, fried spam sandwiches with honeyed. Well, that was whatever. that was a staple of my diet at school. You know, that was school lunch. Mm. We'd have spam and then some kind of you know gelatinous vegetable. Well, I used to have turkey Twizzlers, and my god, they were delicious. We had Finder's crispy pancakes. Oh, I've heard of them. Yes, Before in the eighties, it was all the rage. What were they? I think they're supposed to be based on like a folded over pancake with a, a filling, a semicircle with some kind of grey sludge in the middle and some of them were cheese and ham, some of them were beef and there was a big scandal about a decade ago because the beef would turned out to be... Horse. Horse. (laughs) Which, you know, is kind of... It was one of the things that put me off eating meat, actually, those stories, I I tell you, because you you can't trust what you see. You know, know. is it it horse? (laughs) Is it beef? (laughs) Who knows? But, yes, anyway, I grew up on this stuff. You know, we've been eating this stuff for decades and decades. You know, I'm 43, uh, Mm. you know, I've spent a lifetime eating this kind of thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. Mm. Am I supposed to read this now and think... I'm heading for disaster, or is it that food isn't the key in this worrying picture of rising cases of heart disease, of diabetes, of other health problems that we know are an issue, that it, that it's not, you know, necessarily Finder's crispy pancakes. No. That's not the sole cause. That's not the... There's lots of other things yeah, going on there's lots outside of, other things. of that. And, and couldn't it be that, you know, I mean, since we know about the complex mm. causes, multifactorial causes, including genetics mm. and everything from things like pollution to, you know, all of the exacerbating factors that that being in poverty, for instance, mm. can trigger, looking at just food be be completely the, the wrong thing? I... Th- I think it is completely the wrong thing i think it's so short-sighted if you think about a person who eats a lot of this kind of food i mean yes you and i that was maybe part of our diet but it wasn't our entire diet and also it was a it was you know this is where i disagree it is a big part of my diet and it always has been but there are also lots of different things about your life that are health positive right right you have time in the day to do exercise and you have time in the day to you're you're also conscious of what you're eating yes so it's not that you know if if this if you were kind of living off i don't know oven chips and fish fingers for every single meal you would probably be aware that you were doing that and that Mm. perhaps you should mix it up maybe a few times a week right right because that's something that is a priority for you or or certainly something that's in your conscious Mm. But I think that there are people that, you know, perhaps have so much else going on that 
that kind of food just it's not important really mm. what they're eating because they have a lot of other stuff to worry about Henry Dimbleby was quoted a lot this week. He was talking about this tidal wave of harm that was come, going to come from from processed foods. Something else he said was that it made up eighty percent of the diet. Um, but I know other research shows that it's as low as twenty percent of ad- adults' diets. But the children eat more of it. Mm. And my mum, being busy and having a job that kept her at work till seven o'clock, would rush back and you know ready meals were yeah, my mom a godsend. Too. In fact, sometimes my mum would say, I remember, I think I must have been like old enough to be at home, but not really old enough to look after myself properly. And she was at work and she said, oh, there's chips in the oven. Put them in Put them in the oven. You'll have mm, chips mm. for dinner. And I think I did, maybe with something else. It feels slightly chastising, yes. you know, that presumably the, the same same mums today that, that we had back then, busy, working, coming back mm. home, Actually, you really need to get home and start cooking from scratch. Everything must be whole food. You should be by a large pot of broth. Well, look, I could talk to you about this forever and ever, but but I think we should talk to an expert. Joining us now is Rob Percival, who is head of food policy at the Soil Association. Rob, thanks very much for finding some time to talk to us today. We're discussing uh, this week's headlines about ultra-processed food Killer Cuisine said the daily record. There were some people calling for ultra-processed foods to be regulated like tobacco and slapped with health warnings. This is all rather alarmist, isn't it? There's reason to be concerned about the prevalence of of ultra-processed foods in our diets, but I agree that alarmist framings can, can be unhelpful. This latest study that's been published is one of a whole series which indicates that actually the balance of our diet has become unhealthily skewed in the direction of, of some of these products and that there is action that's needed to support people to eat differently. But I don't think there's any reason for, as, as individuals or, or, or as sort of citizens, for everyone to start panicking. I mean, what this study that was being reported, the main study was a, a PhD paper that found this increased risk of cardiovascular disease in people with a high UPF diet. And this was independent of fat, salt, sugar, and all the things we thought were bad about UPFs, or that I thought was bad about UPFs. So there was something magical, something deadly hidden in UPFs that that we weren't seeing that was damaging us. Is, Is that something that you feel is true? So it it remains the case that everything we knew about nutrition is still valid. But what this research is revealing is that there's more going on than we realize. This latest study is one of a whole series of studies which is controlled for the um, influences, uh, these nutrients of known concern, and still found there to be independently and robustly an association between high consumption of ultra-processed foods and poorer health outcomes. And there's nothing magical about that. We just need more research to understand what the underlying drivers are. There are various mechanisms that have been hypothesized around the way processing affects the biomolecular structure of food, the texture of food, the way additives interact with our satiety system, our our capacity to feel full. There's a really complicated picture there, but there are excellent scientists working on this, trying to pinpoint what the underlying drivers are, and, and we can expect to know more very soon. I mean, so, something you're mentioning there is is this idea that we become addicted and we eat, you know, more than we need of these foods. Is that right? So I think there are valid reasons for thinking that within diets rich in ultra-processed foods, there are certain products which interact with the body's satiety system in such a way that encourages repeat consumption. We keep eating beyond the point where we'd normally 
feel full because the body's hormonal signals are misfiring. That's one, you know, legitimate hypothesis that's been put forward. I think, you know, the, this addiction word is, is quite loaded. You know, is, is food addiction the same as a drug addiction? I mean, I yeah, think that, yeah, yeah. that it's right that that's challenged. I think it's a provocative word that does imply a kind of behavioral pattern associated with Ultra-processed diets, but I think well, it might I, be the, the answer well, I, is no. It's a, it's a very a drug addiction is a very physiological and we don't clear physiological. We uh, don't need to to take drugs as well. Yeah. Where we we do we need, need to, to eat. eat. Yeah. But no, I do relate to it because I've always said that I think I have a limitless appetite for um, you know things like pizza, burgers, chips, all of those things. I can eat and eat and eat. I put on loads of weight in my twenties because of McDonald's breakfasts oh they're so good can i can i not just ask you rob do you mm. not think that it's as simple as these foods taste really good well that's what i was going to say I, they taste great as anyone who has had a sharing bag of m&ms next to them in the bedroom I'm not naming any names <laughs> um you know it's very easy that you would you will start off with a full sharing bag and in very short space of time there'll be maybe a handful left that's not because of any particular magic. It's just because they taste yeah, really good. Nice. Yeah. yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree that taste has, has a lot to do with it. But And, and it's, again, it's got nothing to do with magic. But if you look at how taste and, and satiety signaling interact with each other, there's some good research on this. Some of the ways in which natural flavors are delivered um, in a, you know, a tomato is rich in various polyphenols and, and these biochemical compounds which deliver its flavors in ways which are known to interact with the body in such ways to signal that food is being delivered, there's nourishment coming, and there's a sort of balancing mechanism to say, okay, we're, we're getting nourished, now we'll stop eating. With ultra-processed foods, with many of the um, artificial flavors that have been developed, there's evidence to suggest that that doesn't happen in quite the same way. So you're absolutely right that on just the sort of sensory level, it's good, good to eat, we want to eat more of it, but it does seem that there's more going on in the body, and that's why we need more research to understand how these mechanisms are shaping the way we eat across the span of a highly processed diet. Don't a lot of artificial flavours begin their life in the natural world? Yeah, sure. Some of them do. Um, some of them begin life in a more sort of laboratory type setting. And I, I don't want to suggest that it's the artificialness of the flavours as such that is the problem here. I mean, that's one part of the picture. And the way that these foods have been constructed leads to a whole series of reactions across someone's physiology that shape the way they eat across the day, across the month, that shape the way they relate to food, that, that shape the way that their body responds when the nutrients are delivered. There's, there's a really complicated set of things that are going on here. But it does seem that it's more than just salt, fat and sugars. We do need to be looking at ultra-processing as a valid lens through which to understand the way that health outcomes are shaped. One of the kind of criticisms of this argument is that the definition of ultra-processed food is quite complicated or, or quite vague, actually, in some ways. Are there any processed foods that you think are okay? So what can you give an example of, of a food that's maybe been through some processing that's relatively fine and healthy? Or are all foods that have been through any processing yeah. or should not be eaten? That's a really good question. So the NOVA classification system distinguishes processed foods from ultra-processed foods. And when in the processed foods category, you have things that are tinned, frozen, pickled, fermented, these kind of traditional processing techniques. And, and the, the evidence is not associating those foods with harm. That's not to say those are all great. And then ultra-processed foods are very different. It's a very, as you alluded to, it's a very broad category. These are 
they shouldn't all be treated as a single entity. A bread is different to a Mars bar. And what they have in common is they are part of this industrial processing paradigm. They're situated in the food system in a particular place, in sort of a political space. And they are using various modern additives and processing techniques, which we're just beginning to understand. Some of them are probably more harmful than others. Some of them might turn out to be completely fine. But what the evidence suggests is that when these foods come to dominate the diet, that's when there's reason for concern. What about something like packaged bread? So like, for instance, even if it's wholemeal, so I often will buy a, like, a loaf, a brown loaf from Tesco's. Is that ultra processed and, and actually I should be buying the fresh loaf from the bakery or, you know, even better making it myself? Yeah, breads are a hot topic of debate. So I think on the whole, breads is not where we should be feeling most concerned. But if you look at the data as to what ultra-processed foods are actually being eaten, it's lots of cakes, biscuits, baked products, snacks, lots and lots of um, highly processed meat, soft drinks. And it's all these foods that for years we've been looking at saying, well, okay, if we just reduce the sugar content, reduce the fat content, then probably they're okay. The evidence is actually suggesting for those foods that actually that's not enough. We actually need to be shifting the diet more fundamentally. So I think, yeah, don't get too hung up about your supermarket bread. Do you think Do you think that those foods should be banned, like turkey Twizzlers have reformulated to be much healthier? And if you look at the nutritional profile of Twizzlers now, they're pretty good. But you think something like this, which is so mechanically made, should be off the menu full stop? Well, I don't think anything should be banned. You know, there's a big inequalities piece to this. A lot of people don't have the, the capacity to access less highly processed foods or healthier foods. So making sure that everyone can afford to eat a healthy diet is one key component of it. And then reining in the marketing, particularly when it's targeted at children, of ultra-processed foods, it also feels like a, a necessary first step. I'm not advocating for bans on any particular products. I mean, something you just mentioned there was really interesting. Mm. You said that the key was to make sure people could afford a healthy diet. Um, I was going to say, I mean, do you think that perhaps that diets high in ultra processed foods, they might be a marker of a poor health lifestyle and that there are many things going on that could be raising the risk of things like diabetes, heart disease? Yeah, so this is a common challenge in the, the type of sort of observational studies that nutritional epidemiology and so on that, that some of this evidence is, is derived from. The scientists working on this have controlled for those additional factors as far as they can. They've factored in all the different socioeconomic dimensions of this and, and still found this robust association between UPF and, and poorer health outcomes. But, but it's difficult to untangle that. And certainly there is a, a big inequalities dimension to this you know ultra processed foods are more commonly consumed you know down the social gradient towards people who are less affluent the consumption of minimally processed foods such as fruit and veg is more prevalent in, in more affluent segments of society because they're more expensive it's partly yeah that's a large part of it and there's an, an access part as well you know there are people living in so-called food deserts where they don't have access to shops that are selling this this stuff and they don't have the time in their lives or the, the, the equipment in their kitchen to, to cook. So there's, there's a big complex inequalities picture to un, unpick and all this. It certainly needs to be the case that convenience foods and healthy foods need to be available to everyone in such a way that doesn't harm their health. 
with regards to the UPF conversation that's going on at the moment with books coming out, and we, we you know, we had Chris Van Teleken on a couple of weeks back, and it's very eye-catching to kind of create a bogeyman. But what you're actually saying is is really complicated and would be something that would lead back to government policy, you know, government economic policy, I suppose, rather than let's talk about supermarket bread, which is, is where the conversation always ends up. Yeah, and I'd love, I mean, this is maybe a conversation for another time, but I'd love to hear your your views on the role of the, the media in all this. It's some of these influential figures who have published books and so on, they get a lot of flack for sort of simplifying the debate and so on. But if I go on the, the Mail Online, has run 10 different stories in Oxford Process Foods in the last two days. You know, there's, and I don't mean to pick on the Mail specifically, but there's something about how this complexity gets filtered through the media in association with these high-profile figures that, that has led to a certain sense in which the debate's been oversimplified mm. and, and, and polarised. Well, I'll give you a short answer to that. The reason that Mail Online will have run 10 stories on it is because lots of people are reading about it and they run repeated stories on the same subject if lots of people click on it. Because So there's a high level of interest. However, the initial story came from people like Henry Dimbleby and this conference Having been to many, many heart conferences, I don't think that these uh, reporters will have found this PhD student's poster session or whatever it was for themselves. It will have been highlighted to them by someone else. You know, I wasn't there, so I don't know who it was that briefed them. But reporters report what they are hearing. So that's the role of the media. But, you know, I mean, it's it's Henry Dimbleby that said that there's a tidal wave of harm. So, you know, I would back that back to you. Yeah, I mean, I know I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I didn't mean to overemphasize the role of the media, but, but it becomes a sort of self-perpetuating snowball, doesn't it? And, and there is a sense in which the media is playing a, a role in the middle of all this, for better or for worse that is creating the societal discussion, social media as well, completely different entities. Also, it's all filtered through there. And then you have, yeah, I'm, I'm a campaigner. I'm, I'm trying to push a set of policy asks to government. We're engaging the media around all this. I'm not singling out journalists as culpable, but I'm, I'm just commenting on the big picture that we have this really complicated body of science. And I am of the view that government fundamentally needs to act on this. But there's a limited role that the people as individuals can play to address all this, given sort of economics of the, the system at large. And we do need to find a way of having a better conversation around all this because it's starkly polarised and, and very confusing for the, the average person trying to understand what they should eat. I think that it would be naive to expect that you couldn't have a conversation about this kind of thing and, and for it to not descend into talking about packaged bread. Because at the end of the day, you're talking to consumers and you're talking to the average person who wants to know the healthiest thing to eat. With something like this, it's you either engage in a public discussion about it or you don't. There are public figures who speak about this and are absolutely aware of the way that they phrase things and that it would become incendiary. People like Anthony Warner on Twitter, there are many people who talk about this issue in in its complexity, Mm. but their messages seem never to carry so far. And then you, you do have someone like Chris Van Teleken, who is a, you know, who's come on the podcast before and is a brilliant communicator, but he absolutely knows the right 
the best way to get a simple message across to a, a mass audience. And if you look at some of the articles he's written, for instance, in the Daily Mail, he's not presenting a nuanced argument, really. He's presenting something that's quite simple and clear and is obviously going to be taken by the average Joe to mean something that's very personal to their life. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was Chris who uh, called last week for warning labels on packets to replace the traffic light system. You know, he said these products inflame the gut, disrupt appetite regulation, alter hormone levels, cause a myriad of other effects, which likely increase the risk of cardiovascular and other disease. And someone very famous who's a doctor stands up and says those things, it's going to carry very far mm-hmm. because that is a trusted person in authority. You know, much like you are, Rob, because of the Soil Association being such a recognised name. And in this conversation that we're having right now, it's very understandable and we're getting out the nuances. But, you know, I think that maybe they get lost um, a lot of the time in this conversation. They do get lost. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and there's obviously more, a lot more nuance in, in Chris's book, which is very well researched than can be fit in an article. Yeah, I guess the other dimension to bring in just in, in, in terms of why, in, in thinking about why this has become so strident, is that there is legitimate reason to think that this science is quite inconvenient for the food industry and there are reasonable grounds for thinking that they'd rather it all went away and and actually they're quite politically influential it's not to say the food industry is bad that's corrupt scientists trying to you know make people unhealthy but but there is this sort of paradigm shift in Pinova and the EPF concept and it doesn't necessarily sit very well with the industry's business model and so there's there's a bit of a head-to-head emerging between those who are really convinced by this evidence and, and, and really compelled to, to advocate for the government to respond and, and a real pushback from, from those who are both legitimately questioning what we do and don't know, but also are, are coming from a slightly conflicted space in, in, in terms of their industry involvement and all this. And, and it's very difficult, again, to unpick all that as, as a sort of outsider, the average citizen, trying to understand what is everyone's motive, what is everyone's motive in all this. So, again, that's part of the reason it's become so polarised, I think. Mm, that's definitely an important point. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. As always, it's been really interesting having a chat with you. Thanks so much for having me. I find it so interesting that in conversation with us, he's a lot more measured and balanced and sensible than the sort of statements we see on Twitter from Rob Percival, which are quite strong. Yeah, well, that's Twitter for you, isn't it? Try and say it in 140 mm. words and uh, get lots of retweets and you're going to end up losing the, the subtleties, aren't you? Well, look, next, I think we should talk to a doctor who believes that these messages are important as well. And someone I believe has a brilliant ability to distill sometimes very complicated medical and, and health information into a way that we, we can all understand. Dr. Hilary Jones, ITB's resident GP. Dr. Hillary, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on our podcast. I'm slightly fangirling. Uh, I would like to ask you about ultra-processed food. I was quite interested to um, see your views. I believe it was on Lorraine earlier in the week. You seem to, to be quite strong. What, what do you feel about these types of, let's say, junk foods? And, and do you think that they're really as dangerous as, as they're being? it's being portrayed? Well, a lot depends on the amount that we eat. Clearly, there's no such thing as bad food overall. But if we're eating highly processed foods all the time, then there will be a health issue that may follow because they're not healthy. We get more than half the energy 
in our diet from these processed foods because they're so energy dense. And of course, this can lead to obesity and to type 2 diabetes, amongst other things. Early death has been attributed to the overconsumption of highly processed foods. So it's about a question of degree and how much we rely on them. Obviously, they're cheap and they're convenient and they're very rich in salt and sugar and fat, which makes them very palatable. So they're very popular and become addictive. So if we're eating them all the time, it's bad news. So something you mentioned there was the convenience factor. And, you know, as, as a GP, you must understand this, that, that that's really important, isn't it? The food's convenient, you know, when people are very busy, you know, and making sure people are fed is, is a real issue. You know, if you've got a big family and kids running everywhere. What do you advise people to do if they're if they're reading these these headlines and worrying mm. that they're doing the wrong thing? I, I think it's something that we can get around with a little bit of planning. I, I think a lot of people have lost those skills in the kitchen that, that perhaps older generations had as a matter of routine. For example, you know we, we can cook a very healthy food if we batch cook, uh, if we cook a large amount at once. That means that we can do it on one day of the week, perhaps, and, and store the rest. We can also choose ingredients which have got less of the complicated names on the labels, food uh, labeling that we don't recognize the names of. We can make sure that we spend a little bit more time learning about what additives should be avoided. I mean, we get so much both salt and sugar and fat in, in these processed foods that doesn't assist our nutrition in any way, but does induce an addictive palatability about these products and makes us crave more. And it's those cravings that lead to an over-reliance on these foods. But yeah, there are ways ways around spending too much time in the kitchen. We need to, I mean, food is important. Healthy eating is, is really important. If you look at any website talking about how to maintain good health, it'll say a healthy, balanced diet. Well, we need to focus on that and we need to find time to produce good, healthy food for our families rather than perhaps spending time on other things which are perhaps not so healthy. Something that always stuck in my head from the last few years was the campaign by footballer Marcus Rashford to compel the government to keep providing free school meals throughout the pandemic and lockdown. Initially, the plan was to just cut off this uh, supply of food to large numbers of, of families. And he pointed out that without free school meals, he would have not eaten where does this fit into this conversation? The fact that we've got, you know, such a big issue there with people, you know, essentially in a situation where without serious support, they're not going to eat at all. And the idea that, that people should be spending more time in the kitchen and cooking nutritious meals for the family, etc. I mean, where do you see the balance between those two things? Because they seem to be slightly contradictory, don't they? Yeah, I mean, my fervent wish would be that uh, unprocessed foods or minimally processed foods would be subsidized so that everyone could, could have access to fresh fruit and vegetables, natural products like eggs and meat, grains, seeds, nuts. These are all healthy things. The government could do more there. We would do well to reduce the number of fast food outlets quite so close to schools or anywhere else for that matter and have more choice about healthier options. But you're right, there is a lot of food poverty in the country and a lot of kids are going to school without having had supper or breakfast and, and school meals and breakfast uh, 
clubs make up for a lot of that. For example, I, I, I work with the School and Nursery Milk Alliance to provide a healthy milk drink at break time for as many children as possible in the eligible age groups because that is a satisfying meal in a cup. It makes up for a missed breakfast to some extent without reducing the appetite at lunchtime for a um, solid food meal. There are lots of things that, that can be done. School meals can certainly fill a gap where children are going to school hungry and therefore not able to concentrate uh, as much as they should be on their on their lessons and their academic achievements. So, yeah, a, a two-pronged attack would be very useful. And personally, I, I, I would like to reduce the amount of advertising of processed foods everywhere, on television particularly, because you only have to look at these ads and you feel hungry. And we don't want that. Mm. Dr. Hillary, I want to ask you a question. Myself and Barney have, have discussed this, the fact that processed food, ultra-processed food, played quite a pivotal role in our childhood and upbringing. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on it. We both grew up on we both grew Finders, up on this crispy kind of thing. pancakes Most and boiling the bag. Most of my friends did. And now we're all in our 30s and have lovely fond memories of, you know, those adverts of... Some of us older. Burger some of us older, <laughs> et cetera. And, and, you know, we used to walk past the ads by the, the bus stop near school and then run to Burger King to get a whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. And, you know, we're all relatively healthy. None of us are, are obese, I would say. None of us have health problems. We're all sort of now eating a relatively healthy diet and exercise, et cetera. You know, what about people like us? Oh, yeah. I mean, as I say, I'm not obsessional about this. There's no such thing as bad food. There's nothing wrong with the occasional burger. But it's a question of amounts. And if, if people are eating three meals like that every day, that's clearly not a good thing. You're, you're only getting a certain number of nutrients and not a balanced diet. It's about making sure that children, particularly when they're growing fast and developing, are able to consume a balance, a varied balance of different food groups which would include not just carbohydrates for energy, but also vitamins and minerals, protein, fruit and veg. The underlying pathological process of heart disease and strokes, for example, begins in childhood. And, and you know, we know from studies, uh, post-mortem studies on children who've died in accidents, that you, you've already got hardening of the arteries beginning at the age of five onwards. So the earlier a child is introduced to that varied, healthy, balanced diet with not too many of the treats, but of course some. You know, we, we've got to enjoy life as well. Then uh, we're going in the right direction. Doctor, tell me, how many burgers can I eat a week and be <laughs> healthy? <laughs> <laughs> Are we talking about those? Are we talking about cheeseburgers? Definitely cheeseburgers. Definitely cheeseburgers. Yeah. Look, yeah. Well, look, I mean, I, I think that two or three of those a week when you're having fruit and veg and healthier options the rest of the time, absolutely fine. This is music and to my ears. Two or three. Hey, the doctor yeah. said I was allowed to have yeah. three burgers. <laughs> yeah, it's, especially if you're if you're exercising and, and doing all the other right things, like, like not smoking and not having too much stress. I mean, it's all about, I mean, life for living and good food and, and enjoyable food is, is important. And even if you look at the, the cookery programs on TV, some of the things they cook are, are so beautiful because <laughs> they contain a lot of relatively unhealthy things. Like they're, Drowning they're, you know, in butter. butter. <laughs> yeah, so, so occasionally that's fabulous. But the rest of it, we don't, we don't need it all the time. And, and I think what's happened in, in recent mm. decades is that we've come to rely on that really strong taste 
and we've forgotten how nice those those more subtle tastes can be if we get used to them. I mean, for example, me, when I was young, I used to put two or three teaspoons of sugar in tea or coffee, and basically it all tasted the same. And then I re-educated my palate over a month, and I gave up the sugar, and, and it was actually, you could taste the tea and, and the flavor of coffee, and I didn't need the sugar, because you've already got sugar in milk anyway. It's just empty calories. It's just habit, and and I think everyone can change their palate if they use a little bit of discipline. Mm, I'm trying to get used to spicy food. It's not going very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Hilary Jones, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. A pleasure. Thank you. I mean, it's it's, it's never going to make headlines, is it? Don't put so many teaspoons of sugar in your tea. You can have three burgers as part of a balanced diet. But make sure you're exercising. I think something that Dr. Hillary said really struck a chord with me. I think we don't give enough attention to the strength of habits in the way that we eat. Mm. Oh, there was that um, study that showed that most people eat like three different dishes yeah. on repeat. Which so I think many is of really us are creatures of habit. Yeah, which is exactly what I do. And it's really difficult to stray away from those habits. Yeah. And the other thing is, once you're in the habit of eating food that tastes really good, mm. you want to keep eating food that tastes really good. Professor Navid Sitar, who's a diabetes and obesity expert at the University of Glasgow, tells his patients to have a salad. And instead of having all four fingers of the Kit Kat, have a two-finger Kit Kat. That's a great tip. It's a good tip. It is a good tip. But still have the Kit Kat. You still get to have a bit of Kit Kat. I just think we're over... Are we not overcomplicating something that's so simple? Yes. (laughs) Is the answer. And I I also... Some foods taste amazing, so we want to eat them loads. But don't eat too much. Yeah. Yeah, try and eat healthier. (laughs) Try to eat healthier. You all know what that means. If you eat fewer really delicious things, then you're not going to want delicious things all the time. We're all going to die. We're all going to die, no matter what you eat. And that is that. We can't do anything about that. Well, if you want to read about this, uh, you you aren't going to read about it in this weekend's Mail on Sunday because we haven't written an article about it. But there's all kinds of other things in this weekend's Mail on Sunday which are even more fascinating. So do pick up a copy in your news agent. You could also pop online to mailplus.co.uk or download the Mail app if you've not already. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.